It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports on a Monday? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. From our Dixieline Lumber and Home Center studios in San Diego, this is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host and partner in crime, the venerable John Riley. We welcome you to our Monday bonus podcast. John, item one, we survived what many thought was going to be a hurricane hell of a weekend. And B, we got baseball pennant races to talk about. Here comes the college football season and the NFL. There's a lot of topics on the table. The table did not float away this weekend. Yeah, well, thank goodness. I mean, it wasn't quite as bad as I said, but it disrupted a lot of the sports weekend. A lot of the Sunday games moved to Saturday. So, yeah, a lot to cover. Topic one, Padres lost weekend. Lost season. Oh, brutal. I was thinking of picking up the phone and calling my friend as a Catholic priest and asking him if he wanted to go to Petco Park and give last rites to the Padres baseball season. I'm just blown away that you could lose three of four to the Arizona Diamondbacks who came into town with a 7-25 and record since July. And you lose three of four to the Diamondbacks. Could have lost all four. Yes, Padres hit a couple of unbelievable drives on the button that were tracked down at the wall. A couple of amazing catches. This team is 18 games out of first place. 18 games. <laughs> this team is six games wow. back of the last wild card spot. With all those teams, they'd have to leap by to be able to get it done. Uh, The Padres have lost 10 of their last 14. They get Miami, which is fighting for its playoff life, in for this short series at Petco. And then they go away. They go to Milwaukee. They go to St. Louis. Milwaukee's in a dogfight trying to win their division. So at the end of the day, the Padres lineup just across the board has underachieved. John, here's some stats I dug up. As they start play on Monday, Manny Machado's hitting 248. Hmm. Career batting average is 281. Yeah. He's down 40 points. Tatis, he's hitting 268. I don't know if he's fatigued or he's dinged up, but he's a career 284 hitter. That's 16 points deficient. Juan Soto, 261. Hits it well, strikes out a lot, walks a lot. 261, 106 walks, 106 strikeouts. Mm -hmm. My goodness. He's a 290 career hitter, so he's almost 40 points below his career average. Xander Bogarts, 265. He's been consistent and solid, but he was a 280 hitter when he left Fenway Park. Jake Cronenworth, 230 hitter, 20 points below his season average, and Jake's now in his second bad substandard season in a row at home plate. He was a 285 guy when he got here, and he's gone progressively down to the point he's at hitting 230 right now. Those guys that I just mentioned, that's a combined 113 points below their career batting average. And the bench, just brutal. And the DH, brutal. First base hitting, terrible. Catchers with the bat in their hand, kind of deficient. And by the way, this team has three, three, one, two, three hitting coaches. And look where they are. 
statistically. Yeah. Uh, fans are amazing. 50 sellouts on the season. I mean, the fans are continuing to go out. They're not seeing winning baseball. Sub-500 team at home at Petco, which is hard to believe. Uh, but, but maybe they go because the gas lamp quarter is fun and party time. Petco Park, destination point. It's amazing. Sidebar story, the Padres, and this is radical for them to do it, but this is the way A.J. Preller operates. They have moved five of their top young players to double-A San Antonio, led by the 17-year-old teenage catcher, Ethan Salas. Uh, Salas hit two sixty seven Lake Elsinore as he started the season. And then he moved to Fort Wayne Class A, upper Class A, hit two hundred. But A.J. Preller is of the opinion that letting him compete now against this type of advanced competition, letting him compete and receiving quality pitching as a catcher will benefit him. Ethan Salas, Rob Snelling, who's 9-3, and three, he was also part of the five that moved from Class A to AA San Antonio. Meanwhile, five players have been elevated to Class A Fort Wayne from Lake Elsinore, including number one pick Dylan Lasco, who's recovering from elbow surgery, and young outfielder Sam Zuvala, who's having himself a good statistical season. And this year's number one pick has gone to Lake Elsinore, Dylan Head, 18-year-old outfielder. He was in the Arizona Summer League, the Complex League. He's now been moved to Class A in the Cal League. You never, hardly ever, see groups and clumps of players taken from one minor league affiliate and moved them up. But each of these kids is having good seasons. And I know there's a periphery of fans that are excited about what's in the system. Well, that might be two years away if nobody has any setbacks. And at the end of the day, there are there is a good clump of kids, but they're not deliverable to Petco Park by, by October 1st or even opening day of next season. So do you know any Catholic priest that might want to administer <laughs> – Last rites to the potters. This this is just it's astounding to me. Well, maybe an exorcism is what we need. Oh. I mean, it's the it's amazing. I was at the game on Saturday night, and you know, the, the, again, the fans showed up even though there was all the you know the threat of the of the storm. Darvish wasn't sharp. Darvish gave up a lot of hits, and then they you know the the Diamondbacks started a pitcher. I think his record was one and six. And had an ERA like somewhere above six. And that perfect game going. Yes. And, and we couldn't hit the ball. I mean, and then so many balls were driven deep but caught at the warning track. And those batting averages you shared are so low. Remember we talked at the beginning of the year, we said batting averages should be up. Runs should be up because they banned the shift. You know, they did all these things to change the pace of play in the game. We thought that was going to favor the hitters. But for some bizarre reason, the Padres are going in the other direction. I don't get it. It's stunning to me. Maybe there's too much information overload. Maybe these guys just need to have the three Padre hitting coaches step back and let these guys go up and just swing. Because, I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Those top four guys are a combined 113 points below their career batting averages. And statistically, team batting average, runners in scoring position, really pitiful for a payroll of 253 million dollars. So that's where they are with the Padres. They get Miami. And we'll see what they do on the road in Milwaukee and St. Louis. Exorcism. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's where they need to go. I mean, you know, they say keep the faith. It's hard to keep the faith. But I want to comment on the kids down in the farm. I like what Preller's doing, moving these guys up. They're deserving. Every one of these guys is having a good year. And remember, we've talked about how the depth of the farm system was all 
low A and high A. Now it's been bumped. Now they're up. Now they're at double A. So, you know, many of them are only one step away from the majors, right? So now the upper end of the farm system's getting, you know, bolstered. And meanwhile, Preller and his scouts are excellent at bringing in talent to fill in the lower tiers of the system. So this looks good. It's the, what was it, the number seven or the number nine minor league organization in the in all of baseball? I mean, that's one thing you can't criticize Preller about. He gets talent. Now, does he keep the talent? That's a, that's another chapter, another story for another offseason. Fascinating to watch Ethan Salas. This kid is 17, and he has now played at three different levels. So that'll be fun to see. He seems just mature beyond yes. his years. Yes. And he seems physically so complete. A guy with a bat in his hand. Um, we'll see now as he makes the jump to Double A San Antonio for the final month of the Texas League season, how he copes with that next level. Because as you go up, those guys on the mound are much better pitchers. Oh yeah. And as you go up, those guys playing defense are snaring line drives and ground balls that you think you're going to knock through. So it'll be fun to see where that goes. Bad time in baseball. It's not, just not here in San Diego. We've got some other people that are having really bad summers, and we're not talking about the weather. No, we're talking about the teams in New York. I mean, the Yankees are one of your childhood teams, and boy, they're having a rough go. Nice headline. Shocking summer failures, you think? Yeah. New York Mets are 58 and 67. You know, your dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. Not when you go shopping for groceries, not when you buy gas. I guess 350 million Mets payroll doesn't go as far as it used to. But I think there's the real is, is, is there's explanations. These are not excuses. They lost the season when the season started, when Max Scherzer was hurt, Justin Verlander was still on the disabled list, and they lost Edwin Diaz, their closer. That's three of the most critical pitchers on their staff were not there to start the season, and Diaz never came back. Verlander, it took months. Scherzer came back but has not been dominant, and now they've obviously moved both those guys out of here. You know, you add into that, they had seven total pitchers go on the injured list. Uh, you know, Carlos Carrasco and a few others. Uh, and Pete Alonso has, has a hand injury and a wrist injury. He's just not the same player right now, not hitting the home runs that he did uh, when he was totally healthy. So I, I think there's really an explanation why the Mets are 58 and 67. The Yankees are 60 and 64. Their payroll is $248 million, and they've lost eight in a row. And they are beside themselves in New York. But Brian Cashman could not do anything, did not do anything at the baseball trading deadline. But again, you look at the Yankees, I swear, take this pencil, look at their team stats, and check off every guy who's been on the disabled list this year. It's virtually all of them. Mm -hmm. Giancarlo Stanton had hardly played at all. He's become injury prone. He's got a big contract. Aaron Judge ran into that fence, injured a toe, ligament, Dodger Stadium. I think he's hit one or two home runs since he came back off the injured list. He's not the same guy. Nothing from big money third baseman Josh Donaldson, chronic calf. It looks like he's grow, woke up and suddenly is a really old man. Anthony Rizzo had a back injury. Now he's got a concussion. He's on the I.L., uh, their big free agent, Carlos Rodon, came from the White Sox. He's hardly pitched at all. He's had multiples of injuries, back, forearm, and hip. So the Yankees are just a disaster. 
with all the injuries to every core key player. I think the only guy who's not gotten hurt is Garrett Cole. And he can't pitch every day. So the Yankees are a disaster. And then you couple into that, shocking summer failure, Padres, chronic underachievers. They've had some nagging injuries, but nothing compared to what's happened to the Mets or to the New York Yankees. So, boy, it's it's been a spectacular summer of failures, especially in the Big Apple. Yeah. I mean, a lot of old-time baseball guys there are probably pulling their hair out. Um, remember the beginning of the season, we thought – that the Mets were going to have Carlos Correa. And that was before Diaz got hurt in the WBC. And we looked at that lineup. We were like, wow, this is a a really uh, formidable lineup. And then, yeah, the whole thing blows up. So it makes you kind of, you look at the Dodgers in LA and maybe they've got the secret sauce because they've got, you know, a, a collection of big money guys, but they've got this great farm system. So it's always next man up because for the Padres, for the Mets and Yankees, when those big guys are down, it's a huge setback, but the Dodgers can find guys to fill in. The Braves, the good organizations have depth all the way through their 40-man roster. Yeah, I mean, you raise a great point about the Braves. They, last year, the Braves were ravaged by injuries to their pitching staff. And yet, as the season went on, they kept making phone calls to AAA Gwinnett and to their AA, and they were bringing pitchers up, and those guys pitched well. And, you know, and the, and the next wave of young prospects led by Michael Harris and Ronald Acuna showed up after Freddie Freeman left as a free agent. So Atlanta's done it right. I mean, for the Dodgers to be in first place, when you consider the magnitude of all the injuries they've had to their pitchers, that's been pretty impressive. But they have now brought up six young pitchers, and every one that they called on gave them a good outing or two led by Bobby Miller, who right now is a cornerstone of that pitching staff. Yeah. They just brought Ryan Pepio up from AAA Oak City. He had missed half the season because of an oblique injury in spring training. He gives him five really good innings in his first outing. So the, the Dodgers have depth. The Dodgers have talent. The Dodgers have been able to, as you say, plug in to replace the guys that are hurt. Now, they just lost Tony Gonsolin's going to be gone for the year with an elbow injury. He gave up five home runs in, in four innings the other night, and now they've just announced that he is done for the season. So Dodgers, Braves, not only good talent, big money talent, but guys to back them up. Uh, not the case at City Field, New York, at Yankee Stadium, and to a degree here at Petco Park. One more baseball topic here. Yeah, so <laughs> this was part of the drama at Petco Park over the weekend with Tommy Pham. Yeah, Tommy Pham is very controversial. He's very intense. You know, he was with the Cardinals and had a couple of good years, and then he stopped hitting, and I think within the Cardinal clubhouse, they got tired of the stuff. There was always something going on with him. Him against an opposing pitcher, him against the media, him against <laughs> teammates, and he was gone. And he wound up going to Tampa, and he hit, and then they got rid of him, and he came here. And I, I had pretty good expectations because I thought this guy plays really hard. He's a little bit over the line in terms of intensity. Uh, he, he really works at it defensively. He can hit. He can spray the ball. He can hit home runs. It didn't work. He hit in the 220s his two years here, and they tried him all different spots. After a while, I just kind of got the sense this is a tired old act. And then bingo, he's out of here, and he's, he's moved to two other teams since. So he comes to Arizona, and with him, there's, there's always stuff. And the stuff at Petco Park where he's insinuating the fans next to the Arizona dugout by the on-deck circle just 
harped and harped and harped and used racial slurs and all types of overtones that were linked to racism. And he'd talk back to him because that's who he is. He's right. Tommy Pham. Um, I'm surprised the Padres have indicated there was they found nothing had gone wrong there. But Pham and Tori Lovello, the manager, were very outspoken uh, after the doubleheader on Saturday that why is all this junk happening? Why is this being allowed to happen at Petco Park? So we'll see if there's further investigation here. Why are people in San Diego angry at him? Well, I guess he's just kind of the guy that's the enemy on the other team, and he kind of stirs the drink and creates things. Maybe it's got something to do with the fact that you know, he got stabbed at a strip bar after his first mm-hmm. year here in the offseason. And maybe some people just carry the grudge that, you know, this guy is out of control and this guy's always involved in junk and he got knifed and could have died, et cetera, et cetera. And he's always problems in the clubhouse. So it was it was really a nasty weekend. And then to top it all off, dude hits two run home run and <laughs> Yeah, he killed us. Killed us. That's right. So yeah. you tell me your thoughts on Tommy Pham, what you expected, what you saw. And then you're sitting there along the first baseline looking into the Arizona dugout and seeing all that junk with me in the on-deck circle. Well, well, first of all, um, and what the fans are doing, calling him out with racial epithets, I mean, that's that's uncalled for. I mean, come on. You know, this is 2023. We need to evolve here. Um, I've always had this sort of love-hate relationship with Tommy Pham. You know, when he first came here, I liked his hard-nosed attitude, tough guy. He's got a tattoo on his shoulder or on his arm that says, believe in yourself. And that's, I'm law for that. And I like that intensity. But, you know, yeah, he came here. He got in the in the, a stabbing, I mean, a, a serious injury. Um, and I think people kind of, made him the bad guy. But the people that are casting these aversions on him, what do they do in their personal life? They've got skeletons in their closet and going to a strip club isn't like, you know, he, he was a victim of a stabbing. I mean, we should have sympathy for the guy. But uh, but yeah, he doesn't take any crap, you know. But I think as a Padre fan, we're still a little bit bitter. Because remember that time he collided with Hassan Kim and oh, Shallow yeah. left? And then he was pissed off at Hassan Kim. And, you know, that's everyone's fan favorite guy. But I saw there was even a play that happened. I think it was on, was it the Saturday morning game, where there was a ball hit to deep left center. And the center fielder had it tracked. But Tommy Pham, you know, he's, I'm going to get that ball. Uh, yeah, and they crisscrossed. Almost collided. And, and the ball fell. And I was thinking to myself, that's Tommy Pham. He doesn't want to take crap from anybody. This is my ball. When really, that's the center fielder's ball. He always seemed to be in grudge mode. Full. And, yeah. just, and you know, I've been in that clubhouse. And it's grudge mode. After a while, you say, I don't need to spend any time talking to somebody that's in grudge mode all the time about anything and everything. So, But do you know his background, right? Like grew up in Vegas, yeah, and then he had a really dysfunctional family situation, and then um, some other families t- kind of took him in under their wing, and that's how he got involved in travel ball, and they kind of helped pay his way because he didn't he wasn't of means, and then he just developed in baseball. So kind of a tough guy from a tough situation, self made guy, self made guy, and yeah, he's rough around the edges, <laughs> but he's one of those guys. If he's on your team, you like him. And he was a disappointment, though, for the Padres because oh. he had that hamate bone and he was hitting poorly. But this is who he is. This is who we thought we were going to get. Well, he's not here. And now there's another reason to boo Arizona. Hey, our Monday bonus podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it, build it, and then enjoy it. Nine stores to serve you. One more. 
speaking of guys with problems, let's talk about this NFL story, which we don't know the full details yet. Yeah, I mean, tragic. I mean, there's been a number of different injuries and health situations last weekend over the NFL. Jimmy Graham, tight end, uh, was a star with the New Orleans Saints, went to the Chicago Bears, was in Seattle, came back to New Orleans. He was found on walking in the middle of the street at 7.30 on Friday night near the New Orleans home hotel in Newport Beach. And he was stumbling. He, he could not talk. It was like he was lost. So he was stopped by the police after he held up traffic in the middle of the, the roads. And they took him, tried to take him to a hospital. And they, then they had a, a confrontation with this big six foot six tight end. So he got charged with resisting arrest. They finally got him settled down, got him examined, and they found he had a seizure. They don't know whether he had the seizure in the team hotel or whether he was walking outside the hotel and had a seizure and became really disoriented. And then next thing you know, he's in the middle of the street. Uh, The Saints have taken him off the active roster. He's undergoing, I guess, a wide variety of battery of physical exams to find out what triggered this episode? He does not have a history of seizures or those type of health problems. He's had football injuries, but nothing from a head standpoint. So that's a really scary story because all of a sudden these people driving to Newport Beach, it's a six foot six man standing in the middle of the street, not knowing anything. So the, the, the saints are really concerned, and I, I hope it's a physical malady that they can get this under control and they'll do the test to see if maybe this has got something to do with a concussion. But he was not on drugs. He was not on alcohol. It was at 7.30 in the evening on Friday, and he had just practiced for the Saints against the Chargers. They had two days of practice and then stayed here to play the game on Saturday. He was not on the field in, in his civvies, obviously did not suit up on the Saturday Saints game against the Chargers. But scary story. Yeah, that, that that's that's tough. Yeah, I, for some reason, I don't know, this isn't exactly a parallel, but I'm thinking of that that uh, offensive lineman or a center that was on the Raiders and didn't show up for the Super Bowl. Remember that? Barrett Robbins. Yeah. and But that was more of a mental health thing, I oh, think. The mental right? health thing, that was a drug issue. And, and that was bipolar. He mm-hmm. had severe bipolar. And when he came off his meds, he went off on tangents. He wound up in Tijuana. That's where they mm-hmm. found him and came back and they... They finally got him help, but he was out of football, and he's had he's had a series of problems in Texas in his post football career. But that's all triggered by bipolar. Well, think about back in the day when when this sort of situation it must have happened. You know, an old school NFL in the sixties and seventies because they had a lot less protective equipment. These guys are getting knocked around, and if he's kind of loopy, you know, walking around town, they probably would have just brought him in. No one would have said anything, and now at least it gets attention. He's going to get the medical um, um, service that he requires. But I think for us as fans, it's good for this to be news oriented so we can we can make sure that we're keeping people's health in mind. And we understand all the side effects of being an NFL player. Well, you might get hit in the head now and you're okay, But four days from now, you might not. A year from now, you might not. We had an incident right at the end of the Saints Charger game on Saturday night. Jake Hayner. The mm. Washington Husky Fresno State quarterback came in and played the second half, and he was lighting it up. He took back-to-back wicked hits in the pocket. He made plays, but, boy, he paid a price. So they're coming out of the huddle after back-to-back big pass plays down the field. 
and the officials come in and they grab them and they take them off the field because they have a sky judge, Mm -hmm. the guy that looks at players who've been involved in violent contacts, and then he'll message down to the referee, take a timeout, let's remove this player for observation. So they they took Hainer out over his protests, walked him to the sidelines, walked him into the, quote, blue tent, did whatever administrative test, and about two plays later, he came back in the game and he was he was okay. But so the protocols are in place now to help those guys that get dinged, or the old phrase was, get your bell rung. That's serious stuff now. Oh, very serious. And just tangent, great to see Jake Hayner yes. having some two good weeks in preseason. But, you know, we were talking earlier about the Yankees and Anthony Rizzo and that concussion. And that, I think, happened in May when Tatis was in a pickoff play at first base. And so he didn't go on the disabled or the injured list for like two or three months after that event. So, yeah, these things can linger. Yeah, post-concussion syndrome things can just show up. Yeah. Hey, we get to halftime. Our broadcast or Monday bonus podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Center stores. Get summer project savings at Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers, power tools, paint, doors, windows, decking, outdoor lighting, patio furniture, and a lot more. And check out the great monthly sales and ad promotions. Just go to the website, DixieLine.com. And as we like to say, Dixie Line, fix it, build it, enjoy it. Our Monday bonus podcast continues as we move into the second half. John, before we do, let's remind everybody that's watching us on our live stream how they can join us right at the end with what we call Fans Forum. Yeah, so Fans Forum, you can get involved. I see some names on the list here already, Dale and Jeff and and Greg and Mike. So jump on in. You got a question or comment from Hacks, for Hacksaw, put it in the live chat on Facebook or on YouTube, and we'll get you involved in Fans Forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And a reminder, we want you to subscribe so you will get the alerts every time we put something up on our YouTube channel, and that's virtually every day of the week. Subscribe and share with your friends. And if you like sports, and I know you like what we do, go to my website. There's the address right up top, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. It is all written information. You get the best 15 minutes in sports. You get Hacksaw's headlines. My One Man's Opinion column, which is on the Underachiever Padres. You want to read that tonight. You get to participate in Hacksaw's mini polls. It's on the website. And, John, what's the out-of-town school board say about how many subscribers we now have to our YouTube channel and what just happened on Instagram? Yeah, I mean, Instagram is just blowing up. I mean, they were at 10,700 followers in just a few months. And then uh, the YouTube subscriber base is like 2,700 and change. So we're getting close to the next milestone. We'd sure like to crack the 3,000 barrier. 3,000 by Labor Day weekend and the start of the NFL season. So subscribe if you enjoy what we're doing. Give us a thumbs up. John has no friends. He's out there in left field where he got rained on this weekend. He'll take a five-star rating <laughs> sure. along the way. Okay, let's move on. we got college football to talk about. Okay, the never-ending drama of Pac-12 and conference realignment. Here we go. Season opens this coming weekend. It's called Week Zero, which is first non-conference games uh, for some of the teams around the country. We're seemingly in the final days of life of what will be the Pac-12. And it's really sad And we're going to talk more about that in our Thursday podcast. But I will tell you the information that is leaking out through all the investigative reporting that's being done just paints 
the presidents of the Pac-12 schools in a really bad light. They're walking around with blood on their hands. What happened to this conference a couple of weeks ago? Now we find out that in 2021, after USC and UCLA indicated they were leaving and the Pac-12 was about to become the Pac-10, the Big 12 contacted the Pac-12 presidents and proposed a merger. Mm. They talked about a merger that would involve all the Big 12 with what was left would be the Pac-10. It would be a 20-team super conference. Wow. And that would incorporate Oklahoma and Texas, in addition to Oklahoma State and everybody else that would be coming here to play in a merged conference under the umbrella of the Pac-10. The presidents rejected it. They would not even go to a joint council meeting with the Big 12 presidents to talk about the formation of a 20-team super conference, which would have superseded the Big 10, superseded what the SEC was going to do. That's hard to believe. Then we find out the Pac-12 presidents were approached about just bringing in Oklahoma and Texas and making it a different type of Pac-12, Pac-14. But Texas and Oklahoma wanted bonus money as part of the TV revenue share. They wanted to be paid more because they're the Longhorns and they're the Sooners. Mm-hmm. And the Pac-12 presidents said, no, we're not going to do that. We're the Pac-12. So <laughs> where did Oklahoma and Texas wind up going? Over there. Yeah. Southeastern Conference for a mega contract. Then ESPN... After SC and UCLA announced they were leaving, ESPN approached the Pac-12 presidents and said, we'll give you $30 million per team on a contract extension. You will be one of our marquee nationwide events every Saturday in college football. They turned that down. They turned down $30 million in a TV deal per team from ESPN. Then as the conference fell apart, Apple TV showed up, offered them $20 million with the ability to have bonuses built in based on additional subscriptions. They said, absolutely not. And then as weird a story as there is, one of the most influential people in college athletics is based in Beaverton, Oregon. His name is Phil Knight from Nike. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking mega billionaire. Yeah. Phil Knight approached them and said, let me become your consultant and let me try to work with the media to come up with a mega TV contract. They turned Phil Knight down. Unbelievable. So all this is going on, and on top, they hired Larry Scott, who failed as a commissioner. Pac-12 Network was a disaster. It sank the conference. Then they hired George Klevikoff. He walks into a bad situation. He can't get it done. Now they just hired Oliver Luck, former athletic director at West Virginia, NCAA executive. He's got marketing background. They're going to try to ask him to be the point man to leave him out of the wilderness. But here we are. No to a 20-team merge conference. No to Oklahoma and Texas. No to 30 mil from ESPN. No to Apple TV. Refuse the overtures from an influential guy like Phil Knight of Nike to help them. Blood on their hands. Can you believe the people in the Ivy Tower looking down on society that run these universities? I mean, this is all after UCLA and USC 
hit mm-hmm. the eject button, right? Yep. So these these presidents, the commissioner, they're disconnected from reality, right? I mean, you already have two programs that have abandoned you. You got to think, hey, maybe we're a little vulnerable. But with all that money on the table, just the arrogance, you know, is it is it ego? Like we, we think we're better than we really are in reality? Because, you know, if you roll the clock back, the Pac-12 was a much more – you know, dominant conference on the on the sports scene, but you know, in college football, it's it's a weaker conference now. It's yeah. a dead conference. So you would think that when they were throwing that money around, you'd kind of have a little bit of humble pie, a little dose of reality. Take the money, take the money on the table, and now look what they did. Now they've just blown the whole thing up. But I like that idea of merging the Big Twelve and Big and the Pac twelve. But you know, didn't happen. No, no, we don't want to be. Linked to you people out there in the Midlands. We're the Conference of Champions. We're the Pac-12. It, to me, it's just stunning how they would have no knowledge of what the landscape was or what it was about to become. And then when they had opportunity to have a think tank guy like Phil Knight of Nike yeah. come in the front door and say, this is where the industry is. This is where maybe we can go. This is what my observation is of what's happened all around us. And they're sitting in the Ivy Tower just not responding. Do you get a sense at all of which of the university presidents is more outspoken or has this arrogance? Because I'm sure there's got to be one or two of them that think they're at the very elite level. Can you say area code 213? Ah. Can you say Heritage Hall? Can you say Westwood? Hmm. And the other the other problem is there have been such a changeover of presidents at each of these universities it's not a stable situation, I think, from an academic research standpoint, because all these guys are leaving, whether it's the chancellor, Gene Block from UCLA, mm-hmm. or the president of USC, retired, hyphen, resigned. And, you know, Oregon's gone through a new president. Oregon State's got a new president. So it's, it's really stunning. Okay, from that problem, let's go to this NBA story that is a problem has just resurfaced. Again, John Morant in the news. Is this about guns again? It's about family, and oh. it's got something to do with guns. His father has kind of broken off relations with him. His father is T. Morant. John Morant's a great guard, Memphis Grizzlies. has been suspended twice within about a three-month span for involvement with guns and incidents and a bad posse. Well, T. Morant went public over the weekend, and in essence, he condemned his son. He said, this is not a story about guns. It's not a story about friends. You can't use this as a story about wrong place, wrong time. He said, this story is about his, John Morant's, bad decisions that he got involved in. Said father said the kid has cost himself $9 million in salaries now with the two suspensions. And he's lost all of his endorsements. And yet he refuses to separate himself from his friends his posse. Mm. And now he's suspended for the first 25 games this coming season after missing a chunk at the end of last season that cost him in the playoffs. And the father is just, it's, it's almost as if Timurat has disowned the son because of the son's bad decisions. And he says it's not, it's not about the bums he's hanging with or the places he's going. It's just about his decision-making process to be with these people and go that certain situation and be involved in that incident. That's amazing condemnation from the father of an NBA star. 
Yeah, well, it sounds like the father's right. But why didn't the father instill those values when they was raising John Morant as a young child? So there's something not quite right there. Um, but it's just amazing that he continues to be stubborn, that will not accept responsibility and make lifestyle adjustments here, because this is his life. And, and he's he's literally self-destructing. Um, so this man, we talked about he needs a mentor like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to come in and help him out. But he, he needs a, his father. It's, it's sad the father's disowning him. But this is where dad needs to step in. Oh, maybe maybe there was a bad history background there that led to this point where the kid is so independent to the point you can't reel him back under control. So now there have been no incidents since he was slapped with the 25-game suspension. But the NBA union has kind of interceded. They really need to do an intervention to get this kid on the right track and keep him on the right track. Because he obviously, he told the commissioner, Adam Silver, I was wrong. This is what I'm going to do, et cetera, et cetera. They let him back into the NBA. And then bingo, he had the same thing again at the end of the season. And now now, now he's 25 games gone, which to me is catastrophic to Memphis because they couldn't survive when they lost him for seven or eight games. So sometimes, you you know, it's a bad upbringing. Sometimes it's the person. Maybe it's the byproduct of the bad upbringing. Or sometimes it's the people around the person, quote, the posse. But uh, Maranta's, that situation has not solved itself. Speaking of the NBA mm-hmm. and the commissioner, Adam Silver, your next topic. Yeah, the NBA Cup. I, I'm intrigued by this idea. <laughs> so let's let's break it down. All right. So the NBA has always wanted to do some creative stuff. There's been talk for about four years about an in-season tournament. And when I first heard this, I said, you're going to play a tournament in the middle of the NBA season? You know, soccer does. Soccer takes breaks. The English Premier League, which you and I follow at 4.30 on Saturday mornings (laughs) during the regular season on TV, the English Premier League takes week-long breaks in different aspects of the schedule so their top teams can go play in tournaments in Europe. Champions League and all this other stuff. Well, the NBA has been looking at that and said, that's kind of a cool thing. We ought to do that. All right, so what they've done, and it's going to be just announced, and it's going to be unveiled in November. Every team has the 82-game schedule. But right now, every team has 78 games scheduled, and then the remaining group of games will be part of an NBA Cup tournament in the middle of the season. So in early November, they will take a weekend and everybody will play games in group play. There are six groups, five teams each, that will play their own group in November. Lakers are in a five-team group that incorporates Phoenix, um, Memphis, some other teams. Clippers are in a different group that involves San Antonio, Portland, whatever. So you'll play group play in November. They count in the standings, Hmm. play group play, and the survivors of all that will then go to the semifinals that will be played in December in Las Vegas. There'll be, for example, a Thursday night's semifinal games and then a championship game on Saturday. Those will count in the league schedule, too. So they, they think there's something marvelous about having Sacramento play Denver in November in the NBA Cup, or the Lakers play Memphis in the NBA Cup. The winners of the NBA Cup are getting $500,000 apiece prize money. Yeah, that's not bad. 
Losers are going to get $200,000 apiece prize money. And everybody else that plays, if their team doesn't go on, they get 100000 for having been there mm. at the Cup games. Do we really need to see this? I mean, we got guys making 40 and $50 million <laughs> a year, and now you're telling me that $200,000 and play for something special for $200,000? You know, I, I tried to think the other, quote, gimmicks in sports, home run derby, mm-hmm. pro bowl, Oof. skills competition in football. Skills competition in hockey, slam dunk, three-point shooting, NBA. Do we really need shtick in the middle of the season? I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the concept. Now, if they wanted to do a real NBA cup and take all the NBA stars and put them on the team and the Euro stars and the South American stars, make that an NBA cup where all these guys would play for Team Euro, Team South America, Team Africa, Team NBA. That might be interesting, but this, do we really need this? Well, it, it's, do we need it or do we want it? Okay, I think that's the difference here. <laughs> You're going to watch it. Yeah, well, well, think about this. I mean, how many people pay little attention to the NBA regular season and they really get dialed in in the playoffs? Well, you know, the NBA in December, I mean, we watch Christmas, you know, we'll watch the Lakers on TV. But for the most part, there's not a lot going on in the NBA. So this gives us a little something as a fan to kind of take a bite of, which is good. But I like the innovative idea, the brainstorming. The, 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 I like the, the idea of the tournament. And, and if, they cr- if they craft it the right way, that could maybe give some players some extended time off, depending on how the tournament is structured and who plays and who doesn't. Maybe that helps address the load management issue in the NBA. I don't know. But I just like the creative thinking. And um, it works in soccer. And, you know, if, it's, if it doesn't necessarily need to be NBA teams, I like your idea of the – you know, breaking it down, you know, by continent or by, you know, some other unique geographical way. But why not have the NBA teams play teams from Europe? I mean, that would be pretty cool. Um, And that would really make it an entertaining game and really a worldwide audience. Okay. John needs something to do the first weekend in November and December. You'll have to tell me. John, it's time for Fans Forum here. And so we will ask people, which is the biggest disappointment, Yankees, Dodgers, or Mets? Uh, If you care to comment about the whole storyline as it relates to John Morant, do we really need an NBA Cup? (laughs) Feel free to jump into the chat room, ask a question. We'll try to give you some answers along the way. John, they're your best friends. Where do you want to go? They're my best friends. Okay. All right. There's a motley crew here. So uh, let's get um, let's get Dale involved here to start us off. He says, Chargers depth looks great. Young special teams and defense looks great. Your thoughts aside from Easton Stick, he, and we, uh, we was down. Well, the Chargers had a tough time uh, with New Orleans on Saturday night. Easton Stick, who played really well in the first preseason game, against the Rams, really struggled, wound up throwing, it was 21 for 41, turned it over three times, took five sacks, took six hits, so he kind of got bounced all over the place. But it was interesting because Brandon Staley said at the end of the game, he said, I left him in there because he's got to learn as a young quarterback how to come back from adversity, and he did. He, he had a, a great drive for a score right at the end of the game, but the Chargers wound up losing. Uh, they did, had not played any of their starters, really. Some of the offensive line starters have been in there, but they haven't played any of their stars, and they're not going to play them because they don't want to get anybody hurt. So, you know, what we saw were just kids holding on for dear life. I I do agree with you. Uh, in all honesty, Dale, that uh, I think it's a young athletic roster. 
I, I think, lost in the conversation, and we're going to do our NFL preview next week. Lost in the conversation is how really good that stud offensive line is. Nobody wants to talk about on the broadcast about how deficient their run defense was, how how issues were in the secondary in terms of coverage, and those things still have to be addressed. Uh, but offensively, they're going to be fun. And John and I have talked about this on and off our podcast. I think this offense has the potential to be equal to the Philip Rivers, Ladanian Tomlinson, Antonio Gates offense, and might be as as dynamic. And this this is a real reach. Pull me back if I'm going off the ledge. <laughs> this might be as a dynamic, an offensive group of skill players to the Dan Fouts era, which never ever got to a Super Bowl. That's a lot, but I just I have such a belief in Justin Herbert to go with all the skilled people around him and the guys nobody knows, the studs in the offensive front. Yeah, well, they look good on paper, but how many times have we said that in our past as Charger fans? But let me ask you, Lee, you know, we're obviously optimistic about this team going in. Have they had any major injuries in camp that maybe worry them? No, no, they really have had virtually nothing physically happen. The Miami's had a really bad camp. They've had a lot of injuries. San Francisco's got a lot of guys nicked up. Uh, but no, the Chargers at this point in time totally healthy, and they've not. They've granted all their guys practice, and they in the joint practices, the Herberts and all the, and Eckler, they were all on the field. Nobody's gotten hurt. Knock on wood. Uh, got one more preseason game to go against the 49ers. Then they, they have the bye week before they actually start the season uh, with Miami and Tua. So I, I just like the components of what they've done offensively. I'm walking around with a big question mark on my placard about their defense, and only time will tell when they play come opening day. Do you Next. like Do you like the uh, NFL preseason structure now? It's only three week, three games? I like it, but you don't get to see any established players. Mm-hmm. You know, And I, I they have to get answers on Easton Stick, and I think at quarterback they have gotten answers on Easton Stick. But I, you know, from the fans, you know, hardly anybody's going to these exhibition games anymore. I charge it, that Charger game with the stadium was empty. Yeah, but you got to buy the tickets if you want season tickets. Well, I concur with you. So <laughs> that's another money grab along the way. Move on. Okay, here's another kind of Charger comment from back in the day from Greg. He says, Lee, what is new with your past broadcast teammates, Pat and Les? Uh, Pat Curran and Jim Laslovic. I stay in contact with them all the time. Uh, both are retired. Pat had a great career as an NFL tight end. Then he worked as the business manager for the Chargers for, I want to say, a good 12 years. Then he retired and started a second career. Uh, with uh, Snap-on Tool as a regional manager and did really well. Uh, I go have breakfast with Pat every once in a while. His health is a bit of an issue because he is a tight end. Mm. He understands that. Uh, Jim Laslovic had a really nice career as as a linebacker. Um, I met Jim Laslovic when he was at Penn State. He was a defensive end. I broadcast a game. Ohio University played at Penn State. He was the defensive end. And uh, Jim Jim did well as kind of a, a journeyman linebacker, became a TV guy, became a TV star, and just worked forever on NBC. He lives here uh, down in Coronado. He's in really good health. Uh, you can never get him on the phone because dude is always playing golf. He travels <laughs> all the time. So he's uh, Pat and Laz are doing really, really well. And our executive producer, Mike McGregor, a lot of guys don't know that he's the one that put the broadcast on the air, wired everything. And mm-hmm. we we are the closest of friends. And we spent so much time together, the four of us, on the road. And we broadcast in such bad situations and blizzards. 
and snowstorms and ice storms and press radio booths that had no glass windows. And um, Mike Mike did it for the better part of 35 years. I mean, he was he was with the Ice Bowl Charger game in Cincinnati. He got really bad frostbite. So we stay in contact all the time, and we go out pancakes. So thank you for asking. And it's really cool for Charger fans. John, sometime between midnight and 5 a.m. when you're up and don't you're not doing this, <laughs> go to Google or go to actually go to YouTube. Go YouTube, Charger Road to the Super Bowl. Because I did a thing with NFL Films back in the day, uh, and it was a highlights of the Chargers' great victory in Pittsburgh that got them to the Super Bowl game against San Francisco. Man, you watch that, you get rushes. I, I, I had totally forgotten about it, and somebody brought it up to me a couple of years ago. I said, I dug it up, and I watched it. And it, was, it was just a great, great memory. So just YouTube, Chargers, Road to the Super Bowl, 1995. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Yeah, it's, it's great how as fans, we develop a relationship, you know, with with the broadcast team. And it's for me, this is fun doing this with you. I enjoy <laughs> this. This is great. But uh, what I mean, Laz and Pat, you know, we knew those guys every Saturday or Sunday. Excuse me. Uh, we listened to the game and like, you know, I was had the transistor radio in my hand at, in Qualcomm listening to you guys. Uh, so it's neat that they're still doing well that they're still active. And I love the fact that Lazlick's golfing every day. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I stay in contact with Bobby Ross. He lives in Virginia. I go to see him in the spring when I go back east, and he's still as ornery as ever, and he's in a retirement <laughs> community. And Coach Boss Ross must be 85. And Bobby, he just he and his wife just moved into a retirement village, and, and they're in pretty good health. Nice. And he... He's beyond himself because two of the other guys that live in this big retirement village are retired football coaches. One is 90, the other is 92. And they sit and they have coffee and they swap war stories about coaching college football and coaching the NFL. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's found a neat thing. OK, we move on. OK, moving on. Let's go to Manny here. And he says, why should fans care about the Pac-12? It looks like the smugness from the school presidents killed any hope of surviving. I don't know how they bring it back. I, I there's no there's nobody out there to go get. Now the only only thing that'll s- save it, and we talked about this last week. Trev Alberts, the athletic director of Nebraska, is come up with the idea of a quote Champions League. Now it's not going to happen a week from Monday. His opinion is after the TV networks pay all this volume of money to every school and every conference that they got the rights for, they're going to wake up one morning and say. We don't need to pay Northwestern $50 million a year. We're not going to pay Rutgers $50 million a year. And we don't think that the, the woebegone teams in the Southeastern Conference should get $50 million per team from us. And Trev Alberts is of the opinion that they'll form a Champions League. They'll take the top 25 teams in the country, two or three from each major conference, put them in, into a, a big money football conference, and the networks will still pay a lower amount of money to every other school in each of the conferences. But it won't be $50 million to Rutgers or Northwestern. It'll be much less, but that'll make those conferences survivable. And he also thinks they'll get away from all this ridiculous travel for not, sure, not for basketball, but for baseball and track and field and lacrosse and all that. Mm-hmm. He says, I mean, it's, it's absolutely stupid to think that we are sending UCLA and USC's Olympic sports to the Midwest to play all those Big Ten teams. It makes no sense at all. 
He says, so if we form a Champions League at the top with the big names, everybody else will operate and everybody will go back to a regionality. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll bring some of these conference schools back to what was the Pac-12. But to, to, you know, to get to Manny's point, there's nobody out there to go get that I think brings any significant value. And, you know, if, if you're going to take San Diego State and Boise State and Fresno and Colorado State, and that's going to be part of the new look, Pac-10 or Pac-12, that's fine. But that kind of looks like Mountain West 2-0 to me. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue here. I mean, check out John's comment here next. He says, perhaps the best thing to happen to the Aztecs was not getting into the Pac-12. Well, it would have been a big issue if they had gotten there and everybody else had left. Uh, And I don't think if they had gotten there, it would have carried any clout to prevent these other schools from going because it's all kind of spun back to the value of the TV contract. And the TV contract was terrible, according to what Apple proposed. But it was terrible because the president's prior had turned down $30 million a season from ESPN per school when $30 million was at the top of the food chain. So blood on their hands. Pac-12 yeah. Pac presidents got blood on their hands. It's just just nonsensical, big inflated egos oh, here, yeah. you know, that just, just don't want to accept reality. And, you know, it's like, you know, the bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush, right? So take the money when it's on the table. Past tense, gone. Yeah, it's gone. Here, let's get another guy here involved. And this is from Gamer Vision. He says, hey, the NBA Cup sounds like the PBA, <laughs> Philippine Basketball Association Cup. And I would hate to see that format here with the NBA. Well, I, I just don't understand what what's exciting about seeing the Brooklyn Nets, you know, play the Miami Heat in an NBA Cup game in group play the first weekend of November. This is supposed to be really important. What if you play the Cup game and you lose your star player? What if a guy blows out a knee or an Achilles in the, quote, NBA Cup game in November? Then what does your team look like the rest of the year? And you raised the point about workload. and, And so the Clippers, because it's the NBA Cup, are they going to play Kawhi and Paul George in back-to-back games in the first round of the NBA Cup? Mm. Load management? Mm-hmm. Go yeah. figure. It's, it's, it, I just like the idea that they're thinking differently and they're, they're experimenting with ideas because, you know, you just need to shake it up every once in a while. That's a good thing. Okay. You're just, you're just, you go off on these tangents all the time. It's absolutely amazing to me. Okay. We move on. <laughs> we move on. Um, and, uh, Let's go to, I had this one lined up here and escaped. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, and, and this is from Gerd Jeff. He says, why are they going after Harbaugh over a cheeseburger? Well, you're talking about the three-game suspension of Jim Harbaugh that Michigan has just handed down. I don't think this is the end of the story because the fact that he lied to the NCAA, that's pretty significant. And now the NBA investigation is not complete. Michigan announced today that he is suspended for the first three non-conference games, lucky East Carolina, uh, <laughs> but then he'll coach when the Big Ten schedule starts. I think I think that the NCAA is going to come back and they're going to tag him in 2024 because this is significant stuff, that he was dishonest to the NCAA about the blackout period when no school was allowed to recruit, bring on campus for visits, any player during the COVID blackout era. Everybody had to shut it down, and yet his people made contacts. And then he was not honest in answering questions of the NCAA. So I I think, uh, Jeff, we haven't heard the end of this, and I think in 2024 he's going to get tagged again. Wow. 
I, I mean, it's, it's incredible how many moving parts are going on in college sports right now mm-hmm. and keeping track of all this. And as a coach, you want to recruit players, but you got to stay in the, in the lines and the, the rules are always changing. I mean, this is tough. I mean, it really is. The whole, the whole model needs to be rebuilt because right now it's, it's too unmanageable. It sounds like you're copying out an excuse. If the email from the NCAA headquarters says, because of COVID, we are shutting all recruiting down nationwide. No recruiting visits, no contacts with players nor parents for a, I think it was a four-week or six-week window. But that was for everybody. That Mm -hmm. was for Dartmouth, and that was for San Diego State, and that was for Michigan. And Harbaugh didn't read the email. Yeah, I don't believe that. No, but they're always scheming, right? They're always looking for, you know, a way to kind of work around the rules because they're competitive by nature. You know, these coaches, especially Harbaugh. So, yeah, it's something. It's something, isn't it? Moving on. Okay, this is a a comment from Dan Smith. He says, uh, Fredo Spanos's and L.A. Judas's, what is this, like Nick Canepa's burner phone here, um, will choke like they do every year. Williams has hurt a lot. Allen is old, no tight end, terrible head coach. Blasphemy comparing this Judas team to the great San Diego Charger teams of Rivers and Fouts. Well, if we're going to use that Catholic priest to give the last rites... To the Padres, then maybe he'll stop by here on our podcast and he can hold a public confession for me. <laughs> I, I saw something that was I've never seen before, an actual description of the, quote, chargering. And Brandon Staley answered a question at his press briefing on Wednesday. Coach, what does the word chargering mean to you? Oh. And he actually answered the question. Cool. He says, not getting the job done at the point in time we need to get the job done or something like that. So, uh, I, Mr. Smith, I totally disagree with you. I think this is going to be a great offense. Now, whether or not they have enough defense to go deep in the playoffs remains to be seen. Whether or not Brandon Staley is is on the hot seat, that remains to be seen. I do like the hire of Kellen Moore. I think he's really unique as an X and O's guy. What he did with Dak Prescott in Dallas is special. So, you know, you may dislike Spanos. I may dislike Spanos. At the end of the day, we should respect the roster the general managers put together and the fact that this coach has brought kind of a unique and different culture to the thing and respect the greatness of what I think is, is a really talented quarterback. So I may be in grudge mode, hoping Dean Spanos goes 0-17, but I am violating the rules of the press box. <laughs> I want to see Justin Herbert go 17-0 because I think he's a really good quarterback. Yeah, I think chargering is like the lingering of the San Diego sports curse, oh, right? Yeah. So they moved to L.A. and it still sticks with them. It's like a bad virus. Okay, let's move on here. We got a comment here from Paul. And he says, Trevor Bauer will be back in MLB next season. He was never convicted of anything. It was a grift. Well, the lawsuit is still out there. We'll see if the lawsuit ever ever takes place. You know, he, you know, he may have besmirched his reputation, Paul. The reality is, though, the guy could still get people out. You know, he may be toxic in the eyes of a lot of people, baseball executives, but the guy still gets people out. His record's 9-3 and three for the Oklahoma Bay Stars. He's in a one-year contract making $5 million a season and bonus money, and he got a, a large chunk of his money from the Dodgers. Now, I don't know whether he's going to get his, his reputation back, but if this lawsuit gets thrown out of court— 
And who knows? Things happen all the time in terms of settlement or not settlement or it going away. At the end of the day, Trevor Bauer might be back in the major leagues. I would assume somebody will give him an opportunity to pitch. But you can't remove the reality of the junk that he got himself involved in, can you? Well, do you think the Dodgers right now with all those pitching injuries are maybe regretting that decision to let him go? No, because I just think the Dodgers Dodgers are stoic in terms of what they expect from their players. And they're not going to keep guys who are bad guys. Uh, Manny Ramirez here today, gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a prime example. But there'll be somebody out there, if this court case clears, that will probably give him a kick at the can. And the only question is, will he be a different person in terms of how he handles his, his personal business than he is or what was at the tail end of his career? That's that's a big issue. Yeah, I think he's going to get picked up somewhere. I yeah. mean, he's just too talented. Um, here's a comment here from Brett. And he says, how come SEC programs never get penalized? Well, if you go back in the history book, a hell of a lot of them have. Mm-hmm. You know, Brett, SEC, you know what that stands for? <laughs> sure, everybody cheats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the great the great phrase was that the NCAA was so upset at the violations in the Kentucky basketball program that they called Eastern Kentucky and put them on probation for three years. <laughs> different sets of rules for a lot of different schools. But now the SEC has a pretty ticky-tack history of a lot of problems, too. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just the world's changing. There's a lot going on. But the SEC programs, they've, they're they built pretty well, right? Each of those universities, they're just more hardcore about staying within the rules. I mean, it's in the South, so it's the law and order part of the country, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the most recent scandal was Tennessee, four years probation for oh, all, yeah. the, all the junk that Jeremy Pruitt got involved in just a year and a half ago. So, I mean, Tennessee is... You know, they didn't get the death penalty, but hell, they might as well be dead because they took away all the scholarships and all the recruiting visits mm-hmm. for the new head coach, which is going to be really hard for them to compete going forward. Those type of things mount up. You don't get killed today, but like SC, when they, they took away, what was it, 30 scholarships from mm. the Trojans? What happened to the Trojans after all that happened? Bingo. Yeah, and then it's really hard to dig out of that hole. Oh, yeah. Because who wants to go play for a team that went, what, three and nine for the season? You know? We move on. A couple well, more here before we go to the social media ones. Well, actually, the social media is where we're going to go right now. So let's uh, let's queue up one of them here. And uh, this is an NBA comment about the James Harden possible move. Yeah. And this is from uh, Manny, a different Manny. He says, that's why I don't watch anymore. I grew up with Showtime, the greatest time for basketball. Once Shaq was traded away from the Lakers, it just soured me uh, to the players and the power and they were getting. Kobe wanted to be the only star on that team. Selfish. It sure isn't. It sure isn't the same. Truly sad. I, I'll tell you what, Manuel. I'll sign that memo because the league is forever different. You know, when when the Chicago Bulls owned the league and everybody made a joke about Jordan rules, Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, you look at the makeup of that franchise. That was some team. That was Jordan, and that was Scottie Pippen, and that was Cartwright and and Kukoc and all those guys. And obviously, you look at, at the Lakers and, quote, Showtime, how a phenomenal team that was. Ego set aside, it was still a phenomenal team. And in Boston, it wasn't just Larry Bird. It was Bird and McHale and everybody else that kind of came along that played key roles. The league is no longer what, what it used to be in terms of chemistry, compatibility, etc., uh, and I I get tired of of 
dealing with the hardened story and dealing with Kyrie Irving's chronic unhappiness and to even a degree dealing with what Kevin Durant became as he's moved around the roadmap to all these places because I want to go play somewhere else for some other coach and maybe we'll win there. And it hasn't really worked out. So the league is different. I don't know how they're going to get this league back under control. It's a big issue. Well, how about the Golden State Warriors? I mean, you you got... Um, uh, Curry and, and, and you've got uh, Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson. I'm spacing on names. Draymond and Green. Draymond Green. Now and, you had CP3. Yeah. So I mean that that's a team. I mean it's not just about they're individual stars, but they work collectively as a team under Steve Kerr. So we still have some of that. Yeah, it's kind of the exception of the rule, is it not? Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I know I'm right. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. So the uh, but the NBA is just such a different game than college basketball, and I love watching the Aztecs. Boy, what a great year last year. Looking forward to this year. But yeah, the NBA you just have to have a different attitude going into it as a fan. Okay, got a couple more here before we wrap this up, our Monday bonus coverage. All right, let's go to here a Dodger comment uh, from Paul. And he says, Andrew Freeman built a great farm system uh, to fill in the gaps for the Dodgers. That's why they win every year. A.J. Preller is not at fault here for the Padres. I think the Padres need a new manager and trade Machado to improve chemistry. They have a ton of talent. Well, the only only thing I'll disagree with you is is the reality that these are all A.J.'s players. And this is the end result. If there's bad chemistry on the roster, bad makeup on the roster, if half the roster doesn't contribute, that's because the general manager is the one that made all these deals. So I think A.J. has to be held accountable. Uh, You know, the Dodgers spend money like uh, the Padres spend money. The difference is the Dodgers have hit the jackpot on a lot of young players, and they have not traded those players away. Prella traded away the farm system twice in a 10-year span. And with apologies in advance, because I think both of us at the corner tables here, we like A.J. Preller. But at the end of the day, you are responsible for the roster you put together and how you constructed that roster and what you gave up to make that roster come together. He hasn't won bleep outside of the, the playoff series last year with the Dodgers. When in 10 years have you seen anything that says, this is a hell of a franchise, look is what we've become, and we're going to go forward with it. They haven't done it. And this year, it, to me, it's just gross underachievement. Oh, it's it's awful. But you you look at the Padres, they're, they're, they're trying really hard, right? They got an owner, he's spending money, all right? They, they built up that farm system, they traded it twice, but this third go-around still a great farm system. And they're going to keep reloading with more, more talent that they can use as trade chips. But it just, the Padres just, kill themselves you know it's just it's just like they have this curse around them that drives us crazy but you know as far as the Dodgers go I want to include can we go one more comment here about the Dodgers because this got so much attention um, in our social media comments about the Dodgers no respect and uh, Gehrig Sullivan says no one hates the Dodger organization they're one of the best everyone hates their fans why is that? Dodger fans are Dodger fans. They show up late. They may leave early. They get drunk. But that happens to a, in a lot of different major league cities. So why, did, why does San Diego fan hate Dodger fan? Well, I think part of it is is that San Diego fan feels like a little brother, right? That can never beat the big brother. The scoreboard doesn't lie about that. No, this, it, that, that, that doesn't lie at all. The, I think the other angle is, is that, remember, gosh, it's five, six years ago, there was a Giants fan at Dodger Stadium. Sure. And, and he came close to losing his life. Yes. So there's kind of a little bit of that element that I think people don't like. Uh, but really, the Dodger fans, 
they're proud of their team. They're first place. They're winners. And they kind of like to, you know, peacock around, you know, about how good they are. And it's just so damn frustrating for everybody else because the teams aren't as good. Yeah, you look at the Padre record right now and you look at the Dodger record up there and say, oh, here we go again. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just so disappointing. Uh, but Dodgers may have a good year this year. I don't know if they'll get by Atlanta, though. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our Monday bonus podcast. We try to cover a lot of different topics on the table. We love having you be part of Fans Forum. And what I'll ask, please... Inform everybody, share with all your friends all the unique things that we're doing on our YouTube channel. Obviously, we do the Monday bonus podcast, the Thursday long-form podcast, and we put stuff on the YouTube channel virtually every day of the week. Also, remind you, uh, go to my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. It is all written. If you love sports, you give me five minutes, you read what I write, you'll really know everything there is in the world of sports. John, we'll see what this series Padre Miami brings, and then we'll be back Thursday to set the stage for the college football season. And I think tonight's Ryan (coughs) Weathers going up against the Padres, so that should be kind of a fun one. Hey, listen, we appreciate you being with us, and we thank Dixie Line Lumber and Home Center Stores for their contributions to help us operate Dixie Line Lumber. Fix it, build it, enjoy it. We'll see you come Thursday on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com. 